Part 2, Chapter 3 of Mountains in the Mist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom. Mountains in the Mist by Frank W. Borham. The Dainties in the Dungeon. The scene is laid in the villainous old prison at Marseilles. In one of its most loathsome and repulsive dungeons lay two men. For one of them, Monsieur Rigaud, a sumptuous meal has been provided. The other, Jean-Baptiste Cavaletto, had a hard black crust. Rigaud soon dispatched his delicate viands, Dickens tells us, and proceeded to suck his fingers as clean as he could. Then he paused in his drink, to contemplate his fellow prisoner. How do you find the bread? A little dry, but I have my old sauce here, returned John, holding up his knife. How sauce? I can cut my bread like so, like a melon, or so, like an omelette, or so, like a dried fish, or so, like a Lyon sausage, said John, demonstrating the various cuts on the bread he held, and soberly chewing what he had in his mouth. Now, I'm not sure whether this should be called magic. It certainly is a kind of magic. The happy prisoner waves his hand over his crust and cries, Presto! And straight away it is transformed into melon, omelette, fried fish, or sausage at his will. I'm not writing an article on criminology or prison management. But certainly the passage I have quoted from Little Dorrit could be made the text for such a screed. It is a wicked waste of public money to support a man in jail when, by some wondrous witchery within him, he can transform his prison into a palace and convert his frugal fare into fried fish. And a very wonderful witchery, this. By means of it, Charles Lamb turned all the streets of London into pavements of pure gold. I know, the gentle Elias says, an alchemy that turns her mud into that precious metal. I know. Alchemy, witchery, magic. What is it? Yes, it is magic. I feel sure. The most magical of all magic. What Richard Jeffreys felicitously called wood magic. We remember the two boys, the pond a few yards across, and the raft made out of a packing case. Suddenly, by this wild and wondrous magic that transforms a dried crust into fried fish and sausage, the pond becomes the new sea, and they are explorers and adventurers. Let us go round it. We have never been quite round it, said Beavis. So we will, says Mark, but we shall not be back for dinner. As if travellers ever thought of dinner, of course we shall take our provisions with us. Let us go get our spears, said Mark. Oh, yes, and the compass and the maps. Wait a minute. We ought to have a medicine chest. The savages will worry us for physic, and very likely we will have dreadful fevers. Yes, and we must keep a diary, said Mark. And when we go to sleep, who shall watch first, you or I? Oh, we'll light a fire, said Beavis. That will frighten the Huns. They will glare at us, but they can't stand fire. You hit them on the head with a burning stick. 
Now here we have a dirty puddle in a dusty packing case suddenly transformed by what the genial naturalist calls wood magic into an uncharted sea with desert islands, savage tribes, and ferocious beasts. It is clearly the same species of alchemy by which our poor prisoner at Marseille turned his dry crust into fried fish and sausage. And I confess that of the two, I scarcely know which to admire the more. For if some superficial critic remonstrates with me and points out that with Beavis and Mark the whole thing was a furious frolic, whilst with the French prisoner it was a fine philosophy, I am bound to answer that it is by just such furious frolics that we have won the world. It is true that Beavis and Mark were only having a game, but it is also true that your Columbuses and Cooks, your Tasmans and Dumpiers, your Raleighs and Drakes were all playing exactly the same game. It was because their fancy built up strange continents across the unsailed seas that they set out in search of the fairylands of which they dreamed. The triumphs of scientific discovery all follow the same law. When you've mastered the magic by which the crust became a fish and by which the packing case became a stately ship in full sail, you at once understand Newton's flight of fancy from a falling apple to a falling moon. Here is the bargain. If you will undertake to explain to me the process of alchemy or witchery by which the fried fish and sausage evolved from the hard black bread, and if you will tell me exactly how the gallant bark and the sea with a thousand shores evolved from the broken packing case and the muddy pool, then, in return, I will undertake to tell you how this wonderful 20th century world of ours, with its wireless telegrams, its airships, and its submarines, evolved from the Garden of Eden. I feel quite sure that Dickens himself felt that there was a connection between the power by which poor Cavalletto turned a dry crust into appetizing dainties, and the power by which a tiny world has been changed into a tremendous one. For Cavalletto, too, was an explorer in his way. He knew not only how to find a fried fish in a dry crust, but how to find a broad continent in a narrow cell. Lesson. What is the time? asked Monsieur Rigaud. The midday bells will ring in forty minutes. Why? Are you a clock? How is it you always know? Oh, I always know what the hour is and where I am. I was brought in here at night and out of a boat, but I know where I am. See here, Marseille Harbour, on his knees on the pavement, mapping it all out with a swarthy forefinger. Toulon, where the galleys are, Spain over there, Algiers over there, creeping away to the left here, Nice, round by the Cornice to Genoa, Genoa Mole, and the harbour quarantine ground city there terrace gardens blushing with the belladonna here portofino stand out for the leghorn out again for civita vecchia so away to hey there's no room for naples he had got to the wall by this time but it's all one it's in there cavalletto could erase around europe 
without opening his cell door or looking out of its window. Now, coming back to the point at which I threatened to invade criminology, how on earth are you going to imprison a man whose witchery can turn crusts into delicacies, who calmly takes into his cell with him half the face of Europe? There are some men who simply cannot be imprisoned, and it is a waste of money to put them in jail. They not only do not append upon their environment, they decline to recognize their environment. It simply does not swim into their ken, and if you make their environment disagreeable, they will detach themselves from their environment as a lizard detaches itself from its tail and will escape without it. A couple of stories occur to me. In the days of the Maori War, some hostile natives resolved to insult Bishop Selwyn. They arranged to offer him a pigsty for his accommodation. The bishop accepted, drove out the pigs, gathered some fern from the bush for his bed, and occupied his lowly residence with such charm and dignity that the Maoris exclaimed, You cannot degrade that man. Precisely, he politely declined to identify himself with his environment. The other story is from John Wesley's journal. John Nelson, one of Wesley's original helpers, was arrested and thrust into a horrible dungeon. His record of the experience makes good reading. When I came into the dungeon that stank worse than a hogsty by reason of the blood and filth that ran into it from the slaughterhouse above, my soul was so filled with the love of God that it was paradise to me. Now I ask again, what is the good of putting men like these into pigsties and prisons? This is a wonderful thing, perhaps the most wonderful of all wonderful things. It means that the world through which I move is simply a reflection of my own inmost self. It is a mirror. As George Eliot said, laugh and it laughs back, frown and your gloom is recast. If I have a princely soul, every prison or pigsty that I enter flashes by this wondrous magic into a palace. If I am a felon, I may live in a palace, but the palace will be as gloomy as a jail. That is a wonderful saying of Metholix. Nothing befalls us that is not of the nature of ourselves. Whether you climb up the mountain or go down to the valley, none but yourself shall you meet on the highway of fate. If Judas goes forth tonight, it is towards Judas that his steps will tend, nor will chance for betrayal be lacking. But let Socrates open his door, he shall find Socrates asleep on the threshold before him, and there will be occasion for wisdom. Wordsworth was once asked why he wrote of dancing daffodils. Daffodils do not dance. He reflected for a long time and then replied, that he could only suppose that since the sight of the daffodils set his soul dancing with delight, he had unconsciously transferred the inward sensation to the outward object. Of course. It's a gay old world when you're gay, and a glad world when you're glad. But whether you play, almost toil all day, if a sad old world when you're sad, it's a grand old world if you're great, and a mean old world if you're small. It's a world full of hate for the foolish who prate.
of the uselessness of it all. It's a beautiful world to see, or it's dismal in every zone. The thing it must be, in its gloom or its glee, depends on yourself alone. What could be more perfectly natural? It was just because the prisoner at Marseille had the soul that was palatial that the jail became big enough to hold half of Europe. And it was because everything was delicate and dainty in his own heart that his crust became transformed into delicacies and dainties. You put a bishop into a pigsty, and the pigsty becomes an episcopal palace. You put a pig into a palace, and the palace becomes a sty. Now I repeat that it is a waste of public funds to imprison some men. What is the good of shutting Cavalletto up in your villainous jail? with a stone floor for his bed and a crust for his breakfast, if he's going to spend his time cruising about the coast of Europe and feasting on melons, omelets, fried fish, and sausage, what is the good of flinging John Nelson into a foul dungeon if he's going to convert it into a perfect paradise? What is the use of putting John Bunyan into Bedford jail if he's going to fill his cell with the sisters from the Palace Beautiful the shepherds from the delectable mountains, and even the palace and the mountains themselves. We've all chuckled over the letter written by the puzzled Pliny to Trajan the emperor concerning the Christians. The poor proconsul is at his wit's end. He has found a class of criminals for whom his most horrible punishments and his most loathsome prisons have no terror. Indeed, they seem to like these things, for the more he persecutes, the more the contagion of the superstition spreads. The imprisoned Christians sing in their cells, and the dying martyrs greet the unseen with a cheer. Prisons become palaces to them, and their hardest crusts are transformed into angels' food. Pliny confesses to his imperial master that he is perfectly bewildered. Again, when one of the early confessors appeared before the Roman emperor, charged with being a Christian, the emperor threatened him with banishment unless he renounced Christ. The Christian replied, Thou canst not, for the world is my father's house. But I will slay thee, said the emperor. Nay, but they canst not, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away thy treasures. Nay, but thou canst not, was the reply, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there. But I will drive thee away from man, and thou shalt have no friend left. Nay, but thou canst not, once more said the confessor, for I have a friend in heaven, from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee. There is nothing thou canst do to hurt me. What is the use of imprisoning men of this temper? They escape, not from the prison, but in the prison. Like the three Hebrew children, they walked unharmed in the midst of the flame. When we were very young, we used to read fairy tales that told of magic cloaks that rendered their wearers invisible and invulnerable, and we laughed at the fantastic notion. But we have learned since then of more wondrous witchery.
There is a magic that turns prisons into palaces and crusts into dainties. There is a wonder that wraps a man about, and thenceforth no humiliation can degrade him, no banishment can exile him, no poverty can make him poor, and no death can destroy him. End of Part 2 Chapter 3